every spring, I, um, I enjoy, well, except for this past spring for obvious reasons, but typically every spring I enjoy going down to a uh, trail race that starts in Stearns. It's called the Yamacraw, and it winds its way through the National Forest, and uh, it's an incredible race, a lot of fun. It's a pretty long race, and the thing I found the first year was as I went through the race, I, I felt pretty good, and as I got to the last several miles, I felt awful, and it became a battle to get to the end, and it was in those last several miles that you kind of had to just press on and press through, and, and you met great challenges, and then when you got to, you kind of come down a trail, and you can hear people hitting cowbells and excited about the end, and you come across the, um, the bridge there at Blue Heron, and um, when you hit that bridge, it's just every ounce of adrenaline in you carries you across that bridge. It's a time of excitement and rejoicing, and, and people are there standing, cheering you on. Well, we kind of find ourselves in a similar spot right now in where we're at in Romans. We've come to the end of a long race that Paul began in Romans 1, and he began in Romans 1 this this working of theology and working out what the gospel is and what it means. And we come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and these are the end miles, the, the ones that have, found, have proven to be quite difficult and a great challenge, some difficult teaching from the apostle. Next week, we come to the bridge where it is the final stretch, and we come to a passage in which every ounce of adrenaline theologically that we have is going to cause us to burst forth in praise but before we get there we need to finish up chapter 11 today and so today's passage is the conclusion of Paul's treatment of theology it's the conclusion of what he's talked about in Romans 11 and so go ahead and turn to Romans 11 today and I want to I want to just encourage you I guess uh, as we broach this sermon to stick with me <laughs> all right I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly, I'll tell you the end of, ser, end of the sermon, what I was meaning by that as far as sticking with me, uh, whether it meant the length of the sermon, the complexity of the sermon, the headiness, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. There's a lot of different directions we could head in the next few minutes. But I would just say, bear with me, because what we're going to do is we're going to read the text, and then we're just going to walk through the text and seek to gain as much clarity and wisdom from a pretty difficult passage of Scripture and then after that, we'll look at two implications for our lives. So if you're a note taker, get your pen out, okay? If you don't get everything down, there's going to be a section where I want to just take you through Romans quickly. If you don't get all the references there, that's okay. I can give them to you later. Or I can run a copy of my uh, notebook here if you want me to do that. But I, I want you just to bear with me and, and be ready to take notes. And we'll get to the end and get two implications and, and see where we end up. Hopefully, we'll be out of here before the next service. I, that's not going to be a problem. We, we will. If we start going that long, I'll just stop. So, All right. Let's read the text this morning. Romans 11, beginning in verse 25. Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, har a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So let's just walk through these verses for a moment. Let's start right here in verse 25. In the, in the original text, Verse 25 begins with the word for. The New American Standard translates it this way. He, the New American Standard translates by, by saying for. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. And then he deals with, or they, the way they lay it out, then they deal with lest you be wise in your own sight. The ESV flips it around, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. The for is significant. The reason I want to bring that out to you is because it is important to tie that back to what's gone before. It, it, it is a, a word that says, in response to what I've been saying, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So it, 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 it beckons us to look back. It leads us to look back in what Paul has just been talking about. He's been talking about the, the olive tree and about how uh, the Gentiles were unnaturally grafted into the olive tree, but yet the Jews were the natural branches that were broken off. But God has the power to branch them or to graft them back in. That happening, that occurrence where they're grafted back into the olive tree is based on what? It's based on belief. That's where we ended last week in verse 23 of chapter 11. Paul writes, if the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. So what's, what it's contingent upon is will they continue in, in unbelief? If they do not continue in unbelief, God will save them, okay? And so belief is central. And Paul's concern is that they and we might understand the mystery of God's salvation for the Jews. That's what he's been concerned about in all of chapter 11, even working back into 9 and 10, is what does all of this mean about for the Jews? What does it mean? How does it apply? How does this work out for God's chosen nation? And so he wants us to understand the mystery. Now, you, you may be familiar with this, you may not. When Paul says mystery, this is not something that he's saying, listen, this is something that you cannot understand. When Paul says, I want you to know this mystery, he's saying that it, it is something that has, has been unknown but is now made known. So he uses this word in the New Testament several times. So I'm at the mystery, the mystery of the gospel, that something that was previously unknown is now known. God has made it known, made it evident. And, and led us to understand what this mystery is. So what is the mystery? What is the mystery? He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so, in a nutshell, the mystery is that the partial hardening of Israel, not total. Remember, we talked about that in verses 1 through 10. Not final. We talked about that in verses 11 through 24. So this partial hardening of Israel that was not total, was not final, will end when the fullness of Gentiles comes to faith in Jesus. And at that point, Israel will be saved. So the mystery is that God has a plan. And He is faithful to carry this plan out to completion. 
We, we know that. We talked about last week that God is the God who has a plan. And we trust Him, and we look to Him, and we seek Him, and we know we have faith in God to carry out that plan. So the question is, why does He want to make this mystery known? Look at your text there. Why does He want to make the mystery known? What does He say? Lest you be wise in your own sight. Some, some versions, some translations say, lest you become conceited, lest you become full of pride and arrogance. Same thing he said in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Paul's concern is that sp spiritual pride would not creep into the lives of the Gentiles. What does that mean for us? Newsflash, we are Gentiles, right? I think, I don't know of anyone who in here is Jewish. If you tell me, let, or if you are, let me know. We are Gentiles. And Paul says, do not be arrogant. I want you to know the mystery so that you do not become wise in your own sight. That's the purpose of him revealing this mystery to us, that it would produce a spiritual humility within us looking towards God's mercy and God's grace in our lives. Now we come to verse 26 and 27. Perhaps one of the most difficult statements from the Apostle Paul to, to interpret and translate and to make sense of. So we come to verse 26, and, and he makes the statement, In this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, before we work out what does this mean, I want to just kind of take you through Romans 4. I found it helpful in my study this week just to go and to reread Romans and just to walk through Romans and say, what does Paul say about Jews and salvation? What does he say in Romans? Let's do some biblical theology and just trace Paul's teaching about Jews and salvation in the book of Romans. So if you, if you want to track with me, you can. I'm going to move quickly because I have a lot of notes in my, my, in my journal here from sermon prep, and I don't want us to get bogged down here, but I want you to hear what Paul teaches, okay? So here we go. We start in 116 where we read that the gospel is the power of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. In 211, God shows no partiality between Jew and Greek. He will render to each one according to his own works. In 2, 17 to 24, he teaches that Jews who claim to be righteous instructors of the law have broken the law and caused the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. This is not a good spot. This is not something Paul is encouraging the Jews about. He's saying you have caused them to stumble. You have caused them to blaspheme God among the Gentiles. In 2, verse 25, he writes, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Again, problematic for the Jew. Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision based on breaking the law. And we know that all break the law. 2, verse 28 to 29, he writes, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Chapter 3, verse 1, he asks the question, What advantage has the, has the Jew? They are entrusted with the oracles of God, he says. That's the advantage they have. They have been given and gifted the oracles of God. The patriarchs are theirs. The promises are theirs. So he asks again in chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, Are we Jews any better off? You hear the we there. Paul is saying, I am a Jew. So are we Jews any better off? And his answer is, no, not at all. Both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And he goes into quoting that passage from the Old Testament that there is, oh, excuse me, there is none who seek the Lord. There is none 
who are righteous. So we come to chapter 3, verse 21 and 25, what we meditated on, that there is no distinction made, right? No distinction between Jew and Gentile. All have fallen short. All have sinned and missed the mark. Righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all people, Jews and Gentiles. All have sinned and fallen short, but all are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Verse 30 of chapter 3, God will justify the circumcised by faith. He goes into chapter 4. He gives the supreme example of Abraham, the father of the faith, who was justified by faith before he was circumcised. And he states this about Abraham. He says, To make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith for, or that our father Abraham had. So the precedent set by Abraham was not one of being saved by works or being saved by who he was, but he was saved by faith. He believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. For verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, Paul writes, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, offspring who have faith as Abraham had faith. At the conclusion of chapter 4, Paul seems to have seen and understood that that was kind of the final stamp on the argument that all have fallen short of the glory of God Jew and Gentile alike and all are objects of his wrath as punishment of sin and all are saved by grace through faith and so when you look and you read chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 you do not find anything about Jew or Gentile it is simply towards those who believe and the riches of justification the calling to live and the freedom that we have been granted in Christ the wrestling with sin and the dependence upon His grace and the fact that God is, there is nothing that will separate us from God's love for us. But Paul comes back to the subject in chapter 9. He comes back to answering the question. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Paul shares his grief over his fellow Jews. His longing that they would be saved so much that he says, I would be accursed if it meant their salvation that they would be saved. In, in verses nine, 6 through 8 of chapter 9. We read that God's word has not failed because not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, he says. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise, Paul writes. Verse 27 of chapter 9, he quotes Isaiah, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Verses 30 to 33 of chapter 9, Israel did not obtain the righteousness they sought because they didn't seek righteousness by faith. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul says that his heart's desire is that the Jews be saved, but they did not submit to God's righteousness. They sought a righteousness of their own. Verses 12 through 13 of chapter 10, we have the beautiful teaching that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It leads us into chapter 10, verse 14, the calling to preach the gospel because it is only the believing they're only that by believing that they may be saved. They will not be saved by anything else but placing faith in God. And they will not have faith if they do not hear. And they cannot hear if no one goes. And they cannot go if they are not sent. We must go and we must proclaim the gospel. This leads us into chapter 11. Where God has not rejected his people because there is a remnant chosen by grace. In verses 2 through 5 and verses 11 through 12 we learn of God's plan is that it is for Gentile salvation to make Israel jealous and to lead them back to him. Verse 14 of chapter 11, Paul ministers, why? So that some of the Jews might be saved. In verse 23, we read what we said earlier, if the Jews do not, embra or do not continue 
in their unbelief, God will graft them in again. And that brings us to verse 26. In this way, all Israel will be saved. Let me just tell you a few things that we take from that. What, what does this mean? What are our conclusions? Here's the first thing we have to understand about Jews and salvation as Paul teaches in the book of Romans. The first thing is this, is that salvation is only possible through faith in Jesus. The second, Jews and Gentiles equally need Christ. Third, a remnant of Israel will be saved. Fourth, salvation is based on faith, not ethnicity. And fifth, there is a difference between national Israel and redeemed Israel. So that brings us to the point of asking, what does this verse mean? <laughs> what does it mean? Then this way, all of Israel will be saved. Let's break that verse down. I think he, there, there's three statements made in that verse, and that answers three questions. It answers the question of how, who, and what. How, who, and what. When he makes this statement, how. So in this way, in this way, all Israel will be saved. So when he says that in verse 26, he's talking about that salvation will come through Jesus the Deliverer. That's why he quotes, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, scholars are divided here. Some of them say this refers back to the first coming when Christ came. Some of them say it, it looks forward to the coming of Christ, the future, the conclusion. Scholars are divided. What we know, though, is this, is that salvation is in Christ. So Jews, just like Gentiles, must be part of the new covenant through the blood of Christ that takes away sins. It's echoing the same thing that Pastor Ricky read from Hebrews 8, that, that the old covenant was insufficient to bring salvation. And so it was replaced by the new covenant. There would be no need for a new covenant if the old covenant was sufficient for salvation. We, we read in Acts 4.12 that there is no name under heaven by which man must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 10.13 what? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is contingent upon faith in Christ. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be saved. It is contingent upon confessing Christ, believing in Christ, having faith in Christ, being saved by Christ. It is not contingent on ethnicity. Second question it answers. Who? Who? He says all of Israel. All of Israel. And this is, this is where kind of the epicenter of the theological debate and conundrum is. What does he mean by all of Israel? You, you have three options. Three options. At the risk of getting heady here, I'm going to try to summarize the op these options very succinctly. You can read volumes and pages on this. There's three options. One is that Paul is talking about spiritual Israel. The, the remnant of Jews that Paul had spoken of. That would be option number one. Option A. Option B, or option two, it would be that he's talking about true Israel. Those Jews and Gentiles that comprise the church. And then the third option of what he might be saying is that national Israel. He's referring to the nation of Israel as representative. Those are your, your three options for what he's saying. Now, 
I believe and I would say that your choice is between options B and C. Because if he's saying spiritual Israel, the, the remnant of Jews that Paul has already spoken of in chapter 11, that doesn't seem like much of a mystery that needs to be revealed. We've already known that. We knew that God would save a remnant by his grace. Okay? So I think looking at that and going, well, he's talking about a mystery, that, we understand that. We've seen that. He's been very clear of that. So he's probably not talking about spiritual Israel. So it comes down to a choice between, is he talking about true Israel, the church, the Jews and Gentiles that comprise the church, or is he talking about national Israel as representative? This is the choice we have to make. Now, you remember uh, two weeks ago, I said, but before you come to a passage like chapter 11, it's important that you practice good biblical theology, that you look at context and you look at the, the reading of the text. And I, I think when you look at the reading of the text and you look through Romans 11 and you just go through and look at every instance of where God's referring to Israel, God is referring to a people. And God is referring to the nation of Israel. Even in verse 25, there's really no way to read verse 25 as anything but that. Unless you be wise in your own sight, I do not want to come to un or I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When you read verse 25, you naturally read that as him referring to the nation of Israel. Right? And so I think for him to just us to go, okay, he has boom, just changed his train of thought and all of a sudden thrown in this uh, the true Israel there in verse 26. I don't know that we can do that contextually. That's a, that's a pretty big step to take contextually. So I think contextually, we have to understand that Paul is referring here to the nation of Israel. We say that and understand that in full knowledge of chapter 9, verse 6, when he starts talking about Israel, the statement that he made there. An important statement, a statement we have to understand that he says very clearly that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he helps us understand that, that national Israel is not the determining factor for salvation. But here he seems to be talking about national Israel. How does this work? How, how does it make sense? How do we wrap our minds around this? It, it, it doesn't mean, here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that each and every Israelite, without exception, will be saved. But we, we know that. We know that contextually. That's why we just took the time to walk through Romans 1 all the way up to here. There is nothing in Romans to this point that would give you the thinking and the hint that Paul believes every Jew is going to be saved. Actually, the opposite is what you would come to the conclusion of. If you read all the way up to this point, you would not think that every Jew, every Jew without exception, every single one will be saved. I mentioned last week that it is common in the New Testament or in the Old Testament and Jewish literature to see all Israel, that notation, all Israel, refer to the nation as a whole, but not to every individual Israelite. Let me, let me just give you one example of this. In 2 Chronicles 12, 1, I'll, I'll read it to you. You don't need to turn, turn there. 2 Chronicles 12, 1 says, When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all of Israel with him. 
In the fifth, fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukim, and Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Now listen, what happened? He just said that all of Israel, right, all of Israel had turned from the Lord, abandoned the law. But then in verse 5, we read that Shemaiah, the prophet, came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered and said to them, Thus says the Lord, you abandon me. There's still a prophet. So we see there that in the midst where he says all of Israel, in the same passage, he says there's a prophet who came and delivered the word of the Lord. A man of God in their midst. And so we see the nation of Israel is representative, but it is representative as a whole. But within the whole, within the nation as a representative, we understand that individuals are judged according to wickedness, righteousness. There are still individuals that pursue God and individuals that rebel from God. So if I had to summarize this in one statement, some of you are saying, I wish you would have done this about 10 minutes ago. This is how I would do it, Right? It means salvation will come upon the nation of Israel in a significant, amazing way. And every individual Israelite who turns from his unbelief in Jesus will be saved. I think we do have a very clear teaching here that God is going to do a major work of salvation among the Israelites. When will it happen? It will happen after the fullness of Gentiles comes in. The full inclusion or the full number of Gentiles that come to faith in that point at that time in this way Israel will be saved and they will be saved based on the deliverer who comes out of Zion who banishes ungodliness and makes a covenant with them to take away their sins the new covenant of his blood so there will be evidently a point in which we see a great work of God's grace among Jews who are currently hardened towards the gospel when will that be? I have no idea. What will it look like? I don't know. <laughs> if you can figure that out, so be it. I don't know. Those are the things of the Lord. The third question is much shorter. Third question is what? What will happen? They will be saved. They will be saved, and they will be saved not based on ethnicity, but faith in Christ. Just as Abraham was saved by faith, so will the Jews of today and at the end, be saved by faith. Passages, I just want to say this again, passages like this demand that we do good biblical theology and we look through the whole of Paul's teaching, the whole of his writing about the state of Jews, the condition of Jews before God, and how they are saved. Because we get to a verse like that and we get to a statement like that and we go, whoa, what does that mean? We need to understand it within the context and the whole of Scripture. Verse 28 and 29, let's move on. Verse 28 and 29. He talks about Jews as being enemies of the gospel, but beloved of God. So, so he says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So on the one hand, he says that the Jews were enemies of the Gentiles because they were actively seeking to oppose the gospel. They, they were opposed to the works of God. They were seeking to eliminate Christianity. And Paul, the writer, was the spearhead of that at one time. You know that. So they were against 
the things of God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, all who are not with me are against me. In Romans 8, 7, we read that the one whose mind is set upon the flesh is hostile towards God. Many today would fall under this. Mike and I had, had lunch with a, a guy Friday who's a, a missionary, a church planner in Iraq, and he talks about the difference in kind of the social Muslims and the Muslims who are genuine, and he, his words, enemies of the cross. They hate the cross. They hate Christ. They will do anything they can to oppose and to stop and to undermine and destroy the cross. There are people in our world, some of other religions, some who simply hate God and the thought of God and they will undermine Him in any way they can. They exist and they are hostile towards God. But this is not just a one-sided hostility when he's talking about the Jews as being enemies of the gospel. They are outside of Christ. And so not only are they enemies of the gospel, they are also objects of God's wrath. Chapter 2, verse 5. So they do not only need to be saved from futile ways of thinking, but also from the outpouring of God's wrath upon them. That is the salvation that is needed. So on the one hand, they are enemies of the Gentiles, enemies of God because they are enemies of the gospel. On the other hand, the Jews are chosen of God. They're the chosen people of God. And he will remember the promises that he has made to the patriarchs. The promises that he made to Abraham will be fulfilled in Christ. But this promise was made on what? It was made on the basis of faith. We already reviewed that, right? The promise that comes through faith, Romans 4, 16. He says, talking about Abraham and his faith and who he was, he says that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace, that it may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring. It rests on faith. It rests on grace. God has set his love upon the nation of Israel, and it would remain. His blessing endures. His goodness and his loving kindness endures. But how can we trust that to be true? You remember we started in chapter 11? We started with the great truth that God is faithful, right? So he makes that statement. He brings us back to that in verse 29 again, that God is faithful. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He never goes back on his word. He never goes back on his gift of salvation. The calling he put forth will not change. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What God says he will do, he will do. We can trust that. He's faithful. Which brings us to 30 to 32. You may have picked up on a theme. His mercy is more. And we're a debtor to that mercy. In a few moments we're going to stand and we're going to sing of the mercy that was displayed on the tree on Calvary. God's mercy is great and it is more and it is on display in the carrying out of his plan. So in verse 30 to 31 we see that God's plan is to show his mercy. Paul traces that same pattern. Remember last week we traced that pattern of Israel's rejection, their rebellion, their disobedience, and so then the Gentiles' inclusion to make Israel jealous so that what Israel might be saved, that God might take the gospel to the Israelites. We see the same um, trend, the same pattern here in verse 30. Just as you were one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. God is working out His plan. He's carrying out His plan and Paul sees that and he understands that all have rebelled, all have disobeyed, all have bound, are bound to their disobedience and its consequences and all find hope in Christ alone. Not in 
ethnicity, not in who they are, not in where they're from, but God's mercy is given to all without distinction. All find their hope in Christ. Now this is an important distinction. Very important. Please hear this. When he says God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, this is not all without exception. This is all without distinction. There's a big difference between the two. He, he is not saying that all, God will have mercy on all as far as universalism. He is not saying, hey, it doesn't matter. At the end of your life, God's just going to have mercy on you. And you're going to go to heaven. Love wins. He's not saying that. The all here is all without distinction. He's confined, consigned all to disobedience. All have fallen and has fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. We all stand in rebellion to God as objects of His wrath. And we are all saved by His grace. And so all here means all without distinction. There's no distinction between the Jew or the Gentile. All are sinners and all are saved in the same way. All Jews and Gentiles, everyone, are recipients of His mercy. So two implications for us today. A lot of complexity in that passage, I believe, and there's two implications that we need to take away. Here's the first one. Is that we must guard ourselves from pride, arrogance, and conceit. We have to guard ourselves from that. Paul consistently drives this point home in chapter 11. He consistently calls us away from arrogance, away from spiritual pride, and to have a humility of God's mercy. I was just struck by that again, singing that I am a debtor to mercy alone. There was nothing that required God to save me. There was no point in my life or in your life in which God said, well, I have nothing else to do but to save them. I have to do that because they've merited that. They've earned it. There's nothing in our lives that brought us to that point. And I would, I would say, or I would guess, more than likely, most of you in here probably don't struggle with pride or conceit directed towards Jews. I'm just going to go out on a limb and, and say it's probably the case for most of you in here. Hopefully all of you. I, I would say that perhaps maybe what's more common is a struggle with pride against the cultural Christian. An arrogance towards them. Can you believe they do that? can't believe they think that. Really? They think that's what saves them? Or a pride against the legalistic Bible thumper. Or a pride against the unbelieving who live according to the ways of the world and you just look and kind of scoff and shake your head and say, I can't believe that, it's ridiculous, I can't believe they would think that. Oh, that pride, that arrogance, that conceit is alive and well among us. And that pride needs to hear the words of 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11, where Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we all give a hearty amen. Oh, but then Paul smacks us upside the head. He says, and such were some of you. That's who you were. Do you need to be reminded? That's you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do we really have room for pride <laughs> against any of that? 
mean, I've walked the paths of all those people that some of us, and myself included at time, would struggle with conceit and arrogance and pride against. I've been there. I've walked that path. I've been living just like all of those. But God did a work of grace in my life. Thanks be to God. I was like that, but I'm no longer. Because I am a child of God. He's redeemed me. He's saved me. So we stand upon the work of Christ, not upon our own words. So what do we do with the pride that we have? What do we do? I found it interesting to read a a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, yes, talking about pride, he said, yes, pride is a perpetual nagging temptation. Keep on knocking it on the head. But don't be too worried about it. That's what caught me. I was like, what? Don't be too worried about it. As long as one knows one is proud, one is safe from the worst form of pride. Pride is a great foe. But you're probably in a worse spot, a more dangerous spot, if you sit and go, I have no pride at all. That's pride, my friend. So keep knocking it on the head. Keep killing it. Keep putting it to death. Beware of pride, especially if you don't think you're proud. The second implication is that God's mercy is abundant in Christ. That we would step back from this text and go, oh, the deep, rich mercy of God. Now, I'm I'm often kind of surprised at how many people, when just talking and something is made in reference to mercy, you say, what is mercy? And people have a hard time explaining it. What is mercy? I, I, I... Here's the easiest way to explain it. Is that mercy is when you do not receive what you deserve. You don't receive what you deserve. We reserve the full wrath of God. We, reserve, we deserve punishment. We deserve damnation. We deserve to be sent and cast into the lake of fire into hell. <laughs> but His mercy is more. We're a debtor to mercy and God has poured out His mercy. So instead of being dead in sin, we're debtors to mercy. Our sin ran deep. His mercy ran deeper. Thanks be to God, we have passages like Lamentations 3 that says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Have you found that mercy? Do you know that mercy? Do you live in that mercy? Oh, what love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. What a beautiful picture that puts in your head. That your sins are enormous and vast and deep and rich. But His mercy is more. And He throws them into a sea without bottom or shore. They're gone. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Right? And here's a preview of next week. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise God. The Lord. Praise the Lord. Here, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once fought, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, what? Being rich in 
mercy made us alive together with Christ. Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or what about 1 Peter 1.3 where we read that blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Thanks be to God for that. Or what about Romans 28.13 that says whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Oh our sins are great but his mercy is more. Let's rejoice in that mercy. Let's rest in that mercy. Let's find comfort and peace in that mercy. Let's worship him because of that mercy. And that's the implications. Let's guard our hearts from pride and let's lift our hands in praise for the God who is merciful and shown his mercy to us who deserve damnation, who deserve punishment. His mercy is more. So unbeliever, I would ask you this morning, do you know the depth of your sin? Do you know that mercy is not just some nice add-on that we talk about? It is something that you genuinely need. It is something you need because you stand guilty before God. And there's no amount of going to church and there's no amount of giving a tithe and there's no amount of being a good person or saying nice things or letting someone in front of you in line at, at the store. None of those nice good deeds will save you. Oh, don't conceal your transgressions. Don't live as though you're okay. Don't live as though you're religious enough, good enough, okay enough. Confess your transgressions unto the Lord. Forsake them and obtain the mercy of God. Turn from your sins. Turn from your sins and trust Christ today, unbeliever. Please, we would beg of you. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you whose mercy is more than all of our sin. We bow and we worship you because you are a great and a gracious and a merciful and a mighty God. And we sing of your mercy we rejoice in your mercy we rest in your mercy and God I pray that you would stir in the hearts of men and women of boys and girls who do not know you God would you do a great work of salvation in their life God would you lead them to turn from their sin to no longer try to conceal transgressions, to no longer try to pretend they're not there, that they're okay, but God, to forsake them, repent of them, and to obtain mercy from you. God, do a great work of salvation today, we pray. God, I pray that you would guard us from pride and arrogance, conceit. God, it is so easy to creep in. God, I confess that it creeps into my life over and over and over again. So God, give me the faith and the strength to put it to death every time. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters. God, let us be diligent to kill the sin that rears its head in our lives. God, may we come to your word and humbly submit ourselves to your word and to your grace. Thank you, God. 
for your grace and mercy. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing Mercy Tree, a song that leads us to think and to consider God's work of salvation, His mercy, His love displayed on the cross of Christ. So let's stand and let's sing together this morning. Stripes of blood 